Morning, everyone. Um, so this morning we conclude our, our series entitled Faith at Works, which is based in the, the book of James. And I thought, given it was the final week, <coughs> it might be helpful to quickly summarise all that we've looked at over the last couple of months. So it's been quite a quite a lot. And then we'll dig into the final two verses. So the opening chapter of James, it contains three key themes that are restated at different points in the chapter. And they can roughly be categorised as follows. I've put them on the, the slide here. So the first theme is this idea of trials in the Christian life. Um, and the things we looked at underneath that are the, a servant faith and a suffering faith. The next theme is this idea of wisdom. Again, one of the things we looked at underneath that category was this idea of an expectant faith. And then we come across the theme riches and poverty. Again, we looked at what it is to have a perceptive faith that connects to that theme. We then revisit these themes again and we come across trials and temptations in relation to God. Uh, and the, the, the messages we looked at underneath that was this idea of an enduring faith and a blessed faith. And then we revisit wisdom again, but specifically under the areas of obedience and speech. Uh, and Mark last week preached on a rooted faith, which connects to that theme. And as you can see for the slide, one of the things we're going to look at this morning uh, is this idea of an undefiled faith, which would come under that category. But also it comes under the, the final theme, which again is, a, uh, is looking again at riches and, and poverty again. So these are the three themes, trials, wisdom, riches and poverty. <coughs> so as you can see from the outline then, this idea of an undefiled faith falls under the themes of wisdom, uh, of speech and obedience, and concern for the poor. So let's dig into the, the final two verses of James 1 uh, and we'll see what God has to tell us about what it means to have an undefiled faith. But before we do that, let me pray. So Lord, we, we give thanks for this sermon series and all that you've revealed to us over the last while. Uh, I pray that you would be with us this morning as we explore the concluding verses of James. May you grant us wisdom as we contemplate what it means to live out our faith in a, a manner which is pure, and unstained by the world. May you guide and change our hearts so that our love and concern for others would mirror that of the Lord uh, <clears throat> and would reflect his teaching to love uh, our neighbour as ourselves. Amen. So <clears throat> I'll read for the passage. I'm going to read for the CSB if you want to follow along. So it says, If anyone thinks he is religious without controlling his tongue, his, his religion is useless and he deceives himself. Pure and undefiled religion before God the Father is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained from the world. So J James concludes the, the opening chapter of his book by informing the reader about the specific ways they can live out their faith and obedience to the word. And he mentions three things specifically. This idea of controlling the tongue, which is contained in verse 26. The second thing he points to is this idea that we need to look after orphans and widows, which is under verse uh, 27. And then finally, to keep oneself unstained from the world, which is also in verse 27. So we'll just go through each of these themes and see uh, what God might have to tell us about them. So in verse 26, it says, If anyone thinks he is religious without controlling his tongue, his religion is useless, and he deceives himself. So the verse begins with a conditional statement from James where he states, if anyone thinks he is religious, that's a conditional statement. 
However, it's useful to think about what he means by the word religion or religious, because that can be interpreted in different ways by different people. So it's important to clarify what exactly he means by that and for to really grasp and appreciate the meaning of uh, the conditional statement. So the word religion is taken from a Greek adjective. Uh, it's from the word uh, threskos, which when translated roughly means uh, outward acts of reverence or worship. So it's about how we portray our faith externally. So when James states, if anyone thinks he's religious, he's referring to anyone who thinks they're religious as predicated on external appearances rather than the internal reality of a changed heart or the internal reality of loving God. Indeed, some commentators suggest that James opens the verse in that manner as it was likely there was members of his church who seemed to be religious due to their participation in the rituals and rites of the church. And, but for James, that was a shallow devotion that lacked any sense of purity. And for him, therefore, it was a defiled form of faith. So he begins the verse by challenging the reader, and by extension, you and I, to reflect on the nature of our worship and our faith. In essence, he's asking, does the outward appearance of our faith reflect the inner reality that our hearts have been transformed by the love of God? Or deep down, do we feel it's just simply enough to turn up here on a Sunday and to pray and to sing eh, and just go through the motions of the Christian life without any conviction, without any thought, without any commitment and without any concern for other people? So he builds on this conditional statement by inferring that a defiled faith is characterised by an inability to control a tongue. So in other words, he suggests that anyone who engages in slander, malicious gossip, unfair condemnation of other people, exhibits a shallow faith and deceives our own heart. If you're doing that at the same time whilst you're praising God, it's a defiled faith. So the call from James to control the tongue, it mirrors the words of the Apostle Paul, who states that the Christians should put away the aspects of their earthly nature which would defile their faith. He says in Colossians 3, verses 8 and 9, But now put away all the falling, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and filthy language from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, since you have put off the old self with its practices. So the scriptures are very consistent in the command that we have to control our tongues if we are to live out our faith with purity eh, and to live out a faith that's undefiled. So therefore, church family, with respect, let me ask you, do you ever engage in harmful or hurtful speech through anger, gossip, or unfair judgment of others? I do, if I'm being honest. You know, it's so easy to fall into that trap and... In fact, such behaviour is encouraged and glorified in our culture. You only need to look at the news or social media to see evidence in that. So unfortunately, as believers, we're not immune to those types of shortcomings. It was common in the time of James, hence the need for his letter. But it remains a problem in the church today as well. So if this is an issue for you, as it can be for me, I would really encourage you to survey your own heart to try and better understand why it is you might do that. Is it to get even with someone? Is it to build yourself up at the expense of other people? Is it to bond, fit in, and be accepted by other people? Or is it just simply a desire to know about other people's lives and to cast judgment on them? 
Regardless of the motivation, it's made clear by James and elsewhere in the scriptures that such behaviour is sinful and it defiles our faith. Indeed, it's made clear by the Lord himself in Mark 7, verse 20 to 23, where it states, He went on, what comes out of a person is what defiles them. For it is from within, out of a person's heart, that evil thoughts come. Sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance and folly. All these evils come from inside and devile a person. So it's dead clear that the Lord, Paul and James are all in agreement about what comes out of our mouths reveals the state of our heart. As always, it's the internal reality of our heart that determines the purity of our faith. And not whether we just simply pitch up here on a Sunday, participate in prayer and worship. It's more than that. So we need to take on board that if we fail to control our tongue, we, only not, we, only, we not only hurt the person in the receiving end of that, but we also damage our own spiritual health. So for James, the external observances mean little in the absence of inward purity. Such religion is useless for hearers of the word only, and we deceive ourselves. So an uncontrolled tongue is sinful, and it's something we must repent of if we're to become spiritually mature and be able to demonstrate a faith that's undefiled in our walk with the Lord. So this brings us on to the next verse in which James outlines two key requirements associated with a faith that would be pure and undefiled. So he says, Pure and undefiled religion before God the Father is this, to look after orphans and widows under distress and to keep one, oneself unstained from the world. So it's important to state here that James isn't seeking to explain everything that's involved in the true worship of God. As I've already said, his intended audience was uh, members of his congregation whose faith was likely predicated in participation in church rituals and rites without any concern for other people. So importantly, he's not saying that participation in the life of the church and the rituals of the church, uh, we are faithful heart rituals of the church, uh, we are faithful heart is wrong. It's not to get that confused. We cannot be doers of the word without hearing the word first. However, he is worried that hearing the word has been overemphasised uh, within the church at the expense of doing the word. So he's insistent that if we were to balance our personal devotion to God, we are commitment to sacrificial love for other people. So in this verse, James is seeking to redress the balance by highlighting that doing the word is integral to our faith and that this should be evident in the life of a Christian. Consequently, for James, the first requirement of a pure and undefiled religion is the fulfilment of the second great commandment, that we should love our neighbour as ourselves. We are to love our God with all our heart and with all our soul and with all our mind, but we, almost have, we must also have love for others who are in need. And specifically, James says that the focus of our love should be directed towards orphans and widows. And doing that, he's making a direct <coughs> link to the Old Testament commandment that uh, believers should seek to imitate the love of God, or the love of God has for these people by intervening in the lives of people who find themselves in the margins of society. So, for instance, in Isaiah 1.17, the prophet proclaims that God will no longer recognise the worship his people offer him, and that they must 
learn to do what is good, pursue justice, correct the oppressor, defend the rights of the fatherless, and plead the widow's cause. So an undefiled faith will imitate the concern the father has for his people within a world that is lost, hurting, and broken. So James insists that helping others is fundamental to our faith. But let me be clear, we're not justified by God through our works. We cannot earn his favour, nor our salvation. Good works do not equate to a good person. They just don't. Rather, James is saying that our faith in Christ, which saves our souls, should compare us to be the hands, the feet, and the heart, and the healing arms of Jesus in a world that is hurt, lost, and broken. Put simply, we should possess a faith that works for the spiritual and physical benefit of other people. So as followers of Christ, we've all got a role to play, <coughs> sorry, a role to play in meeting the spiritual and temporal needs of people within our communities who are disadvantaged, disenfranchised, lost, lonely, and separated for the love of God. So I've had a cold all week, my throat's going a wee bit. <coughs> so during the time when James wrote, orphans and widows represented the most vulnerable members uh, in that particular society. And within the cultural context of the ancient world, the family operated as a protective social unit, which was headed by a male member, usually a father or a husband. So the family depended on the male members to meet their material needs. So consequently, women or children without a husband or a father were highly vulnerable and pushed right to the margins of society. Women often lost their homes, they had very little rights, they lost livestock, they basically had no means of supporting themselves. Children were often forced to beg or sold into slavery. They were purchased or sometimes gambled for. So being no doubt to be an orphan and a widow in the ancient world was about the worst social position you could occupy. It was a harsh existence. So God's concern for orphans and widows is therefore peppered all throughout the scriptures, particularly in the Old Testament. For instance, in Psalm 68, verse 5, it says, God in his holy dwelling is the father of the fatherless and the champion of widows. Likewise, he states in Psalm 10, uh, it's stated in Psalm 10, verse 16 to 18, the Lord is king forever and ever. The nations will perish from his land. Lord, you have heard the desires of the humble. You will strengthen their hearts. You will listen carefully doing justice for the fatherless and the oppressed, so that mere humans from the earth may terrify them no more. So the scriptures, therefore, they command us to really imitate the father's concern for orphans and widows, but demonstrating the same love and concern for vulnerable people within our communities and within our own lives. So obviously times change, and within our Western cultural context, you know, widows and orphans aren't nearly as vulnerable as they once were in the ancient world. So my question would be, to this morning would be, uh, who are the, the orphans and widows of our time? Who would we say they are? Now, the reason I asked that, because that question was posed to me in a lecture last year. It was put out to a class I was in, and folks said, people living with addiction, people experiencing homelessness, homelessness people with poor mental health, 
people living in dire poverty. And that's all true. But a lecturer uh, challenged us and mentioned one particular group within our society, which interestingly was not mentioned to anyone in that class, who he felt represent the most vulnerable members of our society, and therefore are arguably in the greatest need of help and protection. And he suggested that older adults, older adults now represent the most vulnerable members of our society, and in effect are the widows and orphans of our age. And that suggestion really challenged me, <clears throat> not only as a, be a believer, but as a son whose mum's 71 years old and living in really poor health. And the more I've pondered that and I've thought about it, I happen to agree that they do. <coughs> so I've got some research, I did a wee bit of research. So there's a campaigning group called Independent Age, and they showed that despite the fact that we're getting richer as a society, uh, people aged 65 and over still face significant health inequalities and other challenges in their lives. So for instance, people aged over 65 in the UK live with two chronic health problems that really impacts the quality of their life. Over two million older adults live in poverty and that's more likely to be the case if you're a single woman or if you're from an ethnic minority background or if you're over 80. And at 1.2 million uh, people are chronically lonely. Uh, 1.2 million older adults are chronically lonely. So what does that mean in a local context though? So I did a wee bit of digging. So we're moving to Rudry and just shy of 20% of people living in Rudry are aged over 65. 10% of the population are aged over 75 and that's over 50% higher than the Glasgow average. So what does it mean? So it means Siridri and the surrounding areas are likely to have a significant population of older adults who are living with spiritual, material and physical challenges. As a society, we have not worked out how best to look after our older generation. The politicians just cannot solve it. There's no easy answers. You know, people are living much longer now, much older but not necessarily in the best of health. So it's likely as we get into the future, we'll encounter many, many more older adults who are uh, both with faith in none, who are living uh, with poor psychological, emotional and spiritual health. And that's going to be a reality, particularly in Rudry, given the demographics. So it would just seem to me as a church, we need to be ready and intentional about engaging with our older population when we do start uh, reaching out to people in that community. I think we need to be intentional about bringing companionship to people, but bringing the hope of the Lord to our older adults in those communities. So it's something I think we need to reflect on and pray over as we look to expand God's kingdom within the East End in the coming months uh, and years ahead. In the final part of verse 27, James highlights that care uh, for orphans and widows is a necessary requirement on defiled faith. However, he concludes the verse by stressing a second condition of an undefiled faith is to keep oneself unstained from the world. And in doing that, he's stressing two critical necessities uh, of the Christian life. And the first is the need for the Christian not to be driven by selfish desire and appetites. 
And the second one is the need for the Christian to navigate the systems and the practices of a broken world without compromising their faith and obedience to God. Apologies. <clears throat> so these final words in verse 27 are a plea from James to the believer to be in the world but not to be of it. That's essentially what it is. Or to function as salt and light and <clears throat> to help those in need but not at the expense of being corrupted by the world that's around us. So this aspect of the verse can be understood as a directive from James that we're to renounce personal and societal sin in order to make us more effective in bringing the light and the love of the Lord to the world around us. And in doing that, this instruction from James chimes perfectly with the words of the Apostle John who tells us in 1 John 2.15, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. So James and John are clearing their, clearing their convictions that as Christians we should not reflect nor love the ways of the world. And when I was thinking about this, I was really drawn, I was really drawn, uh, drawn to <clears throat> John 18, 36. I really did feel led with the Spirit into that verse. And uh, <clears throat> the Lord says in that particular passage, my kingdom is not of this world, said Jesus. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight so that he wouldn't be handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not from here. And I, I believe that those words for the Lord illustrate more than any others the critical necessity for us as believers not to be stained by the world. Our task as followers of Jesus is to build his kingdom. However, in the Lord's own words, his kingdom is not of this world. Therefore, to be effective in mission, we can't be either. We cannot love the world and expect to be effective in mission. So for to be salt and light, then we must look, act, sound, and react differently for the world round about us. There must be evidence of inward change which manifests itself in the outworking of faith that's rooted in Christ. Otherwise, our efforts to bring people to Jesus will fall on deaf ears. So, brothers and sisters, I say this, that the bad news is that there's some degree, and I'm going to slow down and say this because the more I practice that, I could get out. Worldliness exists in all our lives. It's so easy to become beguiled by a world, corroded by sin and stained by it. Here's the good news though, and this is all in the Bible you can check. We're a new creation. Sin has been defeated and rendered powerless in our lives. We're no longer slaves to it. It has no dominion over you. The Spirit of God lives in you and empowers you to overcome temptations and remain obedient to him. But we must affirm the truth. We'll never entirely be free from sin in this life. None of us is perfect. However, that does not mean that we should ever accept or believe that sin has dominion over us. Here's what the Apostle Paul tells us in Romans 6, 7, verses 17 to 18. 
But thank God that, although you used to be slaves to sin, you obeyed from the heart the pattern of teaching to which you were handed over. And having been set free from sin, you became enslaved to righteousness. So the apostles making it very clear that when we commit our life to Christ, and we do not forget his word, as Mark preached last week, our love for sin is broken, and it's reorientated towards our love for God. Thus, we're no longer slaves to sin, but we're slaves to righteousness, which results in sanctification. Therefore, it's made clear by James and Paul that our task as Christians is to reject the world and to yield ourselves to God so that more and more we're sanctified and more and more we become spiritually mature. And while sin might not leave us completely, we can rest in the promise that if we do not forget his word and persevere in the perfect law of freedom, we'll progressively become more Christ-like in our lives and we'll be able to win the hearts and minds of people for the kingdom of God. The great reality is this, you're already unstained by the world. However, with the help of the Spirit and faith in the truth, we must continue to grow spiritually and become ever more rooted in Christ. That's the essence of an undefiled faith. As I finish, let me give you an example about why remaining unstained for the world is important to advance the kingdom of God. I read an article recently in the Christian Today magazine which was exploring the decline of the church in the UK and it was an interview with a mathematician called John Hayward whose research has shown that the long-term health of the historical churches in the UK isn't good, that they're headed for extinction. And the interviewer asked Dr Hayward the following question, does the church need more evangelists? Or do we just need to share our faith more? And this was his reply. He said, the church, he said, the church doesn't need more evangelists. It needs more ordinary Christians who have contact with non-Christians and can live out the gospel with them. It's not just about explaining the gospel. It's about living it out. The person who was largely responsible for bringing me to faith was my landlady who would bring out the Bible during mealtimes and asked me what I thought about it. It got me thinking that I should look into faith a bit more, and that's how I became a Christian. I saw her living her faith out. It's people like that who are just willing to share why Jesus Christ is important to them, and why his resurrection made a difference. That's something that, is all, that all Christians we should be doing all the time. It shouldn't be a limited number of people doing it for a limited amount of time. The reason I include that is because that really struck a chord with me because it chimed with my own experience. One of the reasons I came to faith, and I say this wholeheartedly, the only reason I came to this church was because of a colleague at my work. It was simply that. And what stood out to me about her is that a congruence existed between her claims of faith and how she carried herself. That was it. She didn't just tell me stuff, she showed me. She didn't spend every moment sharing about Jesus or sharing the gospel or talking about the Bible. But what was evident to me that she lived her faith out and it was evident in her principles, her reactions, her attitudes and her behaviour. 
Was she perfect? No. And if she were here, I'd tell her that. <laughs> uh, but what was clear to me was that our faith influenced our actions and our conduct each and every day. She was not only a hearer of the word, but she was a doer of the word. And that example, among a few other things that happened, led me to the Lord. But I chose this church because of that, because she was a Baptist. That was it. I googled Baptist churches because I knew she was Baptist. That was it. So no pressure. <laughs> but see, if you tell somebody you're a Christian, they're watching you, and they're formulating an opinion about the Christian faith based on what they see about you. So we always need to consider whether our actions, our decisions, and our choices reflect those of the world or whether they reflect the nature, will, and teachings of God. Hypervigilant. So our prayer must be that we're not conformed by the world, but rather that we're continually transformed by the Spirit as we live out our faith and we plead in Christ's behalf to the lost be reconciled to God. Be reconciled to God. And that's our offer to anyone listening this morning who doesn't yet know the Lord. Make a decision not to be conformed to this world, but to be transformed by his love and his grace by making a decision to follow him. If there's a stirring in your soul this morning concerning Jesus, then please speak to someone. Don't hold that in. Deep down we all thirst for God. Amy read a psalm that said that this morning. There's a thirst that exists in each of us. So my, my plea to you would be to take action and to drink the living water that Christ offers. Quench your thirst. Choose life by choosing him to be the Lord of your life. Close with prayer shortly, but before we do, I'll just invite people during worship to come up and partake in the Lord's Supper. So, you know, if, you, if you've got faith in Christ, just come and show that this morning. Enter into that remembrance, see sacrifice. Come and partake in the Supper. Now, Mark had mentioned last week that the next series is about uh, how to, what it means to pray like Paul. So I'm just going to end today by reading the words of the Apostle Paul concerning uh, the hallmarks of the Christian life. And for me, anyway, these words reflect everything that would reflect a faith that's undefiled and unstained by the world. So family, DBC family, let this be our collective prayer as we look to expand God's kingdom in the East End in the weeks, months and years ahead. So Paul says in Colossians 3, verse 12 through 17, Therefore, as God's chosen ones, holy and dearly loved, put on compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving one another if anyone has a grievance against another. Just as the Lord has forgiven you, you are also to forgive. And above all, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity, and let the peace of Christ, to which you were also called in one body, rule your hearts and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell richly among you. In all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another through psalms, hymns and spiritual songs, 
singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. And whatever you do, in word or in deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Let me pray, folks. So, Lord, we give thanks for this opportunity to meet this morning. And I pray that as we go from here today, that your word will remain rooted in our hearts and will guide us in the days ahead. Lord, may we all be led by your spirit into a deeper love and concern for others. May you help us to live out our faith in a manner which reflects your love and your nature so that others would clearly see something of you in our lives. And may this testimony and example lead others to you as we function as your ambassadors and seek to expand your kingdom in our community. Amen. Thanks, folks.